Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name may or may not be Todd Ixenball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Matthew Sorens, who recently co-authored the book Welcoming the Stranger. He is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief. He is a national coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table and... We're going to be, surprise, surprise, we are going to be talking about immigration and refugees as it concerns really the global picture, but also particularly the United States. And you may be thinking, I've heard the name World Relief before. You have, and that's because we've talked with Kara Almer in a past episode. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so we cover a lot of new ground with Matthew of talking about some of the positive effects that come from immigration. Talking about some of the recent things going on yep. with people on the southern border. Exactly. And so this is going to be a conversation that you do not want to miss. However, Uh-oh. before we get what do we got? to that. What's our resource of the week, Caleb? I. Uh-oh. It's a podcast. He's looking at me. I know it's going to be a podcast. I'm not recommending a podcast. Oh, my goodness. Or a book. Whoa. I am recommending an app. Oh, dude. Please tell me. I'm recommending it called Blinkist. Oh, I've heard of this. Tell them what it is. It is uh, kind of, it's a little bit like Audible, but it gives you books in about 15 to 20 minutes. Which is ridiculous sounding. It is. But it's awesome. I've heard it of this. It is awesome. I've started listening to it, and it kind of gives you like the main points of the chapters and so on and so forth, and it allows you to read books really quickly. Now, don't fret. I'm still reading legit uh, books as well. He but, likes to find ways to cheat, though. But Blinkist allows me, if you're like me, I like to read a lot, and the things that I really truly do read, I don't want to waste my time on them. And so Blinkist allows me to check out books before purchasing books now blinkist it does cost a little bit of money um but it is definitely worth it in my no opinion pain no gain exactly so that is my learner's corner recommended resource of the week awesome sauced blinkist now as we mentioned we have a great episode that we're going to be talking with matthew sorens and so here's our conversation right now well, Matt, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about uh, welcoming the stranger and immigration and the refugee status. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, just as we get started, you know, we're just curious, what has been your experience with refugees and immigration? Yeah, so I think my uh, personal interaction with those issues probably started uh, when I was a college student. Um I think around immigration in particular, my freshman year as a student at Wheaton College in Illinois, I, well, actually after my freshman year, I spent the summer in San Jose, Costa Rica, and kind of a short-term volunteer program, sort of a mission sort of program, and I was primarily working with Nicaraguan immigrants in San Jose, and pretty quickly I noticed that a lot of a lot of Costa Ricans, not all certainly, but many had some pretty strong opinions about Nicaraguan immigrants. And, you know, I'd hear some of the rhetoric that actually sounded a lot like some of the rhetoric we'd hear about among a lot of Americans about immigrants. You know, they're they're either lazy or they're stealing jobs or they're bringing, you know, diseases, they're causing crime, that sort of rhetoric. But as I got to know a lot of these Nicaraguan families, that wasn't my experience of them. And, you know, at a certain point, I asked one of my Nicaraguan friends, you know, why would you you know, come here. It seems like you get treated really terribly and 
you know, blamed for a lot of problems that you didn't really cause. And one of my Nicaraguan friends said, you know, Matt, here we've got food on our plates. We've got a little bit of money to support our elderly relatives back in Nicaragua. And, and that's really all we could hope for. And that, that conversation really stuck with me as I came back to the Chicagoland area and started to notice the many immigrants around me in, in suburban Chicago, but also realized that I didn't know them personally. And I probably had some opinions about them based on what I'd read on television or you know, read in the news or heard on television, what was forwarded to me in an email. Um, but I really wanted to understand the issue better. So uh, as I finished college, I actually moved into a neighborhood where most of my neighbors were immigrants of one sort or another, uh, many of them refugees who actually been resettled by World Relief, uh, others who were immigrants from Mexico, uh, some with legal status, some without. And around the same time, I also started working with World Relief uh, in a role working on immigration legal issues. So I learned about immigration law and got um, accreditation to be able to help serve uh, people seeking to apply for green cards or citizenship or other immigration legal benefits. So that's kind of my background. And in that process, I also realized that even though I've been a Christian for most of my life and, you know, I went to a, you know, grew up in a great church that taught me to to read the Bible and to, to trust the Bible as my authority for kind of everything, and then went to a good Christian college, I never really thought about this issue from the perspective of my Christian faith. And I think that that's actually very typical of a lot of Christians in the United States, because it's not often then the focus of sermons or Bible studies. Uh, so uh, the book really came out uh, about 10 years ago out of a goal to look at how could our Christian faith inform how we would respond to the dynamics of immigration in the United States, both on an interpersonal level, how we as individuals, how our churches respond to the immigrants in our community, but then also to the questions of immigration policy. You said something interesting about when you moved to Chicago um, and how you didn't really know your neighbors. How, do, how can we get to be, I think there's this fear of the unknown um, that a lot of people associate with, with refugees or with immigrants in general. How can we begin to get to know our neighbors? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right for a lot of people, and I understand this. It's very uncomfortable. And that's true whether your neighbors are immigrants or whether they look exactly like you. I mean, our society is, you know, it's we're not uh, a society that is really good at reaching out to people who are not known to us. But I think for me, it might start with just, you know, literally, I brought cookies over to my new neighbors, and they probably weren't very good because uh, uh, I don't know if they really enjoyed the cookies, but they started inviting me over for dinner and bringing food to me all the time. Like I, And that's maybe is a unique cultural dynamic of particularly some of my Mexican neighbors and also some of my Burmese neighbors. But I mean, I, I sometimes had two different plates of food brought over to me in a single night, and I think that's part of why I gained a lot of weight living in that apartment complex. But, um, you know... It, and I was a single guy at the time, and I think, you know, in a lot of cultures, people presume that I couldn't possibly feed myself, which may have been somewhat accurate. But, um, you know, I think that was one way to start. For others, it might be, you know, in most parts of the United States, there are immigrants in your community, and there are immigrants with whom you're interacting on some level, whether they're in your kid's school or they're at your local church. It might just be, you know, in a not in an awkward way, but just saying, hey, you know, trying to get to know those people in, in appropriate ways understanding their story of how they came here, why they came here, um, not to judge people, but, but to learn from them and to have a better, a more complex understanding of this issue of immigration, which is incredibly complex. And I think the tendency among a lot of Americans and a lot of Christians in, as well is to try to make this a simple issue. And it's really not a simple issue. Uh, there are all sorts of dynamics to consider. Not every immigrant is the same. They come from all different places. They come for different reasons. And I think when we try to paint things with too broad a brush is actually where we often get into trouble.
So last year, you know, especially early in 2017, um, immigration, refugees, it seemed to be really at the forefront of the news. You know, everybody was talking about it. Um, but it seems to have quieted down a lot, especially from like the volume that it was at early in 2017. And, you know, the national media isn't necessarily paying it. It doesn't seem that they're paying as much attention to it, especially as they did early in 2017. Can you just kind of talk to us, you know, what is the current state of refugees, you know, internationally, uh, particularly as it concerns the United States? Yeah, um, I think that um, it's interesting, especially in terms of refugees. I think you're absolutely right. We've just not seen a lot of coverage of what's happening with refugees. Interestingly, it's a lot of that has maybe shift to other, shifted to other immigration yeah. issues, and especially people coming from arguably refugee-like situations out of yeah. Central America, but who haven't been designated as refugees yeah. yet. Um, but the global refugee crisis, you know, it's not out of the news because it has stopped. In fact, the UN came out with a report uh, last week that there are now 25.4 million refugees in the world, which is about 3 million more than the year before, and um, wow. a um, you know an, an incredible number of people. It's more than ever in recorded history. Uh, we, it's hard to get exact figures on how many refugees there may have been during World War II or after World War II, but um, you know we know that at any point since anyone's been tracking it, this is the most refugees in the world. And at the same time, the United States is doing far less to welcome refugees. And we went from taking more than 200,000 refugees in 1980 as a country to about 100,000 in 2016. In 2018, uh, we're halfway through the calendar year. Based on the arrivals so far, we'll take in about 22,000. Wow. So a really, really dramatic decline in, in refugee resettlement. And I, I don't think most Americans are aware of that. And I also think it's worth noting, you know, for the churches that we work with, uh, there may be some awareness that there's been particular focus on keeping out refugees from Muslim-majority countries, and that is absolutely true. The number of Muslim refugees is down more than 90% from 2016 to 2018. But that's affecting those of other religious traditions as well, including persecuted Christians, uh, both from primarily Christian countries, but also from primarily non-Christian countries, where they're religious minorities and often face very extreme persecution. Um, I, I think that dynamic hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but for example, there was um, thousands of Iraqi Christians who were being allowed into the United States each year over the last several years. And um, with this, with the change in refugee policy, it's like literally a couple families, you know, very, very small numbers that have been allowed in, in 2018 um, from Iraq who are coming from a Christian background. So it's, it's very troubling to me. I of course, I'm troubled when we're not allowing in persecuted Muslims as well. And I think that our right. perspective for world relief is... All these are people who are made in the image of God and who have inherent dignity and value because they're made in God's image. Uh, but I don't think that most Americans or most Christians are really aware of how the resettlement program in particular is declining. I'm, I want to go back to, um, you know, kind of the national media. Why is, is the reason why we're not covering, do you think we're not covering is just because we're not doing anything and we just want to ignore it? Or like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I think part of it, and I don't want to give some credit to media. I mean, I've talked to lots of good reporters who are reporting on this, yeah. but it doesn't tend to be the headline story. Part of that is there are so many things happening right now. I mean, what's, what's happening along the southern border is also a huge story and incredibly concerning. It's a you know this zero tolerance policy that has been in place um, in a few months ago had the effect of separating thousands of children from their parents in a way that 
that wouldn't have happened under past administrations. And we did see some kids separated from parents in past administrations, but nothing like on the scale that it was happening because of this new policy. Yeah. And that's appropriately troubling. And I think that, you know, takes a lot of attention and, and appropriately so. Um, I also think there's a connection to the refugee resettlement program that most people aren't connecting in that, you know, in 2016, there was a fairly significant number of Central Americans coming to the United States through the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, which means they were identified closer to home, either in their own country or in a neighboring country, as refugees. They went through a vetting process, and they came on an airplane. And that is a much safer process that I think everyone would agree is preferable for everybody. But with the number of, re of refugees so dramatically down for basically all countries, uh, that affects those particular countries in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras as well. And there's a lot of people who might have held out at least a little bit of hope that they might be selected for refugee resettlement uh, if through the, the existing U.S. refugee resettlement program. But with that seeming like less of an option, many people felt like their only hope was to get to the U.S. border and to request asylum, which you can only do if you reach U.S soil. Uh, and if you do reach U.S. soil, you do have the right to request asylum, which is, is largely, uh, not not every case, but many of the people who have been arriving and had their kids taken from them are in that category of people who are looking for Border Patrol agents because they want to request asylum. They're claiming to meet that definition of a refugee. Hmm. Um, just curious, because we were talking about how it's not be, how, the, and I'm thinking, when I say refugee, I'm thinking specifically the Syrian refugee crisis from a couple of years ago and things like that. Um, what, what are, where are places, so we, we talked about how they're not talking about it anymore. Where are places where we can go to be, to, to still see what's going on? Are there news, news places to go see that? Um, are there, there are other, maybe government or, um, larger organizational places that we can go to find that type of news or the places people can go to see that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are some good news sources out there. I, sometimes I think actually in an international perspective is really helpful. Like I, I tend to find the BBC um, to cover these issues uh, more thoroughly than a lot of American press does. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, uh, like even from a Christian perspective, Christianity Today has done really great coverage on this issue. Uh, World Magazine has done really great coverage. So has, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times. I think. Um, it's, I'd say, less so on television news, so you might have to read something to find out what's happening yeah. in these situations. <laughs> um, but um, and, and social media is actually a really helpful tool as well. I know, you know, uh, not to plug my own Twitter handle, but I try to keep people up to speed on what's happening with news around refugee and immigration issues. Again, especially as it relates to the church, but, you know, beyond that as well. Um, and there's lots of other thoughtful people whom I follow because I found they, I, you know, they're people I can trust to provide reliable information. Can you talk to us about, um, can you talk to us a little bit about for one, the, the process that, and, and you can talk to us about the process that, that refugees from other countries go, go through maybe people from the Middle East, but also the process that is happening right now with people along the Southern border of the United States. Can you talk to us about what, what that process looks like and the toll that it takes and maybe the length of how long some of these things are taking? Yeah, and so they're very distinct processes. So let me maybe describe both of them uh, separately. Mm -hmm. uh, the refugee resettlement process, so there's, as I said, somewhere around 25 million refugees in the world, and the U.S. has never taken more than one half of 1% of those in recent years. You know, even in the height of the Obama administration, it was about one half of 1%. So 
for those relatively few who are being selected or considered, they are usually referred by the United Nations to the U.S. State Department. Um, sometimes the U.S. government makes those uh, determinations unilaterally. But then the U.S. government begins a vetting process that involves the Department of State, the Department of Defense, the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI, and an in-person interview with an, a trained officer of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And all that happens abroad, whether in a refugee camp or you know, in an urban context where these refugees are living. That process usually takes somewhere between 18 months and three years to complete. Uh, there's criminal background checks. There's, you know, they're checking your name and your biometric data against all sorts of watch lists of people we wouldn't want in the United States or connected to anyone we wouldn't want in the United States. Uh, there's a medical exam to make sure there's no health issues. And then only if you complete all of that are you allowed to be admitted to the United States as a refugee. Um, so it's a pretty thorough process. It's also a very successful process. Since 1980, when the Refugee Resettlement Program began, there's been more than 3 million refugees admitted to the U.S. from the through that Refugee Resettlement process. And a grand total of zero Americans has ever lost their life in a terrorist attack perpetrated by someone who came to the U.S. as a refugee. Um, that's not to say something bad could never happen, um, but we do have a really strong track record, and I think you need to give credit to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and other parts of our federal government who, ha you know, and to the to this, the officers of Homeland Security who, you know, have fairly difficult jobs vetting people overseas, but they've been really remarkably successful in keeping out the wrong people and letting in people who have done really well integrating into the United States. That's the overseas refugee resettlement process. And again, that's where we've really seen this dramatic decline in the last couple of years, mostly because Homeland Security is just not sending officers out to vet people in anything like the numbers they used to. For those arriving at the border, it's a very different process because these are not people who were invited by the U.S. State Department, selected out of many, many others as the people we wanted to come. They're people who are very desperate. And just like refugees who flee to a neighboring country, let's say Syrians going to Jordan or to Turkey or to Lebanon, they're going to a neighboring country. Um, some of them go south to Costa Rica, for example. I was in Costa Rica last month, and some of my best friends there have hosted a Salvadoran family who's sought asylum in Costa Rica. Some seek asylum in Mexico, but many come and try to seek asylum in the United States. So when they get to the border, um, which is not easy because you're crossing the entire country of Mexico, um, sometimes with legal status, sometimes without, but when they get to the U.S.-Mexico border, if they can get to the border, they have the right under U.S. law to request asylum. And what that basically means is to say that they meet the same legal definition of a refugee that those being considered abroad do. So it's someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. And one of the complicated things actually in asylum law is whether someone fleeing gang violence fits into that category of us people with a, with a particular social group that is leading them to be persecuted. Um, some asylum judges and officers would say that it does, and others might not. And recently, the Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions, basically said it does not qualify in his view in most cases, which he has the authority to enforce that. So we probably will see a lower rate of approvals for asylum as a result of that decision from the Attorney General. But that's what's leading people to come is, I mean, it's, they may not know U.S. law, but they have generally heard that the U.S. is a country that helps persecuted people. I mean, we have a statue in New York Harbor that has a poem on it that says this is a country for those yearning to breathe free. And we have that reputation for better or worse. I, I would say for better, but we, we should probably mean it. Um, and so people show up. Use, most of the people who are seeking asylum 
whether they either go to the port of entry, although there's been some very disturbing reports, and some of this has been confirmed by the Secretary of Homeland Security, that people showing up at the port of entry are not being allowed to reach the border. They're being kept on the Mexican side from getting to U.S. to the U.S. line where they could seek asylum. Um, and they've called that process metering. They're basically, they don't have enough capacity to take in everyone who's arriving there. But the other thing that happens is people go between port, ports of entry. So they're caught you know, uh, without authorization entering the country. But again, most of them are actually looking for the border patrol. And some of that is they may have been told by a smuggler that that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and smugglers are sometimes not always very helpful or honest, obviously. Um, but um, they then are put into a, what we, what you would have happened until recently is you would be put into an immigration detention facility on a short-term basis at least. Uh, usually at least those with kids would eventually be released, sometimes with like an ankle bracelet or other sort of monitor. Um, adults might be detained indefinitely until you go to an immigration court hearing. And then they determine if you meet the legal definition for asylum or for any other benefit under immigration law, or if not, you'd be deported. What's changed recently was the zero tolerance policy that the attorney general put into place where they actually decided to charge people criminally, everyone criminally, even asylum seekers, even those with children. And that meant that adults would actually serve usually a few hours or a few days in jail as a consequence. And in the meantime, their kids would be reclassified as unaccompanied minors and put into the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the President Trump last week uh, passed or issued an executive order basically not undoing the zero tolerance policy, but trying to keep families together. Uh, it's unclear at this point how that's going to work because you still can't detain children for indefinitely under current law. It would require either a Congress to act or the courts to change some things. But what's happening for the moment is it seems to be that they can't separate uh, children and parents uh, immediately, so they're not charging every, everyone criminally the way that the zero tolerance policy says they would. Interesting. Uh, so there, there's, uh, like I talked earlier about this fear that, that people have um, about refugees, and, when, and, and anytime the conversation of immigration or um you know as people like to call them illegals um whenever that comes up there's this there's this negative connotation this fear and there's this idea that people they're having a negative impact on on the country um overall but one of the things that you talk about in in your book is how immigrants actually can have a positive influence can you talk to us a little bit about that yeah i mean i think that's true on an economic level it's true on a, i think on a cultural values level, especially for those of us who are Christians. I mean, immigrants, frankly, are more likely to be Christians than the average American citizen, mm. uh, at least especially like Christians who actually grow to church and, you know, say that their faith is very important to them. It, it's less likely to be sort of a nominal distinction for a lot of immigrant groups, um, but also on an economic level. I mean, even, even looking particularly at unlawful immigration, people who have either overstayed a visa or entered the country illegally, uh, the vast majority of economists think that the net economic impact of those people being here is actually significantly positive. In fact, we cited in the book a, 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 a poll of economists done by the Wall Street Journal a few years back, and they found that uh, about 96% of economists said that the net economic impact of illegal immigration, particularly, and although I think it's fair to say most of them would say the same about legal immigration, is positive. And there's a number of reasons for that, and we, we go through that in the book, but uh, one of the biggest ones is just that immigrants whatever their legal status, are consumers. Uh, immigrants of all legal statuses make up something around 14% of the U.S. population, and it's probably fair to presume that they're buying 14% of the groceries and 14% of the laundry detergent and 14% of the cars and smartphones and homes and all those things that go in 
to the U.S. economy. And so, yes, they're, they're accepting employment. And at a time when our unemployment rate is extremely low, that's actually really important. Like We rely upon immigrant workers. But they're not just taking jobs. They're also adding to the total number of jobs by increasing the economy as a whole. I mean, if you were to if you were able, though this is not feasible, to just remove all immigrants from the United States, that would be a 14% reduction in our population. And there's no question that that would have a dramatic economic impact. Um, it's the same economic impact that particular states that have lost population see. And it's why states like Ohio are, and Michigan are actually very actively trying to convince immigrants to move to their state. Because these are, you know, especially in sort of the Rust Belt, parts of the country that have had significant population loss. And with that goes economic decline. And immigrants have actually been able to fill that in. And part of that, too, is they bring an entrepreneurial spirit in many cases. Not, you know, I don't want to paint too broadly again, but if you look at Fortune 500 companies in the United States, 40% of them were started by an immigrant or their child. Uh, it's a self-selecting group of people who are open to some new things. It's, the, you know, people who would say, I'm willing to try life in a different place. That's not everybody in Mexico, not everybody in Central America, not everybody in Syria or, or Iraq or in you know, any particular country. There's a per certain personality that is open to trying new things, especially when it's not a forced migration situation like a refugee, but more of a, something driven by economics. And those people tend to be uniquely entrepreneurial. And we see that on higher levels of entrepreneurship uh, and among immigrants than we do among the native-born U.S. citizen population. Sure. Um, what can the average person do and what can the average person do to stay informed? That's good, great questions. Um, there's a lot that average people can do. I think maybe it starts with staying informed. And um, hopefully the book, Welcoming the Stranger, is a good resource towards that end. It's just helping people get kind of a basic – we think of it sort of as a primer. And that's why I've done this updated edition that's out uh, very soon um, to give people kind of a basic understanding of how this issue works. But staying up to date, again – I find social media actually be very helpful for that. There's a lot of good immigration reporters um, uh, for various newspapers who follow this stuff every day. And um, so I think that's a good source. Beyond that, what people can do, um, people can get involved in their community, volunteer. Certainly at World Relief, we've got lots of opportunities for people to, uh, even with fewer refugees arriving, there are still volunteer opportunities with refugees who've arrived and with other immigrants as well, whether that's, you know, my first job at World Relief was helping to run citizenship workshops. And we still do those and we still need volunteers to learn about the naturalization application and help people through that process. Or in, in some other places, it might be, um, you know, helping with an English class, or there's just lots of opportunities to actually serve newly arrived immigrants, and in the process to build some of those relationships and friendships as well. Um, the giving is also really important. Um, there's, uh, frankly, especially for refugee resettlement agencies like World Relief, the really stark decline in refugee resettlement has had a financial impact, because part of our funding has been a per-refugee grant from the federal government. Um, we're still serving the refugees who arrived two years ago, but you know we have to find more private revenue to do so. So that's the way churches and individuals can be involved. And you know we have really easy tools to do that at worldrelief.org where people can both give, but also challenge their friends to give and be an advocate for refugees and other immigrants. And then lastly, I would say in terms of advocacy, part of that might be you know, helping raise funds. But part of it is speaking up, reaching out to members of Congress, reaching out to the White House, the president, and saying that, you know, I want immigration policies that reflect my values. And for, for me as a Christian, that's 
yes, I want to honor the rule of law, but I think we can do that at the same time that we keep families together, that we look out for the most vulnerable immigrants and make sure that um, they are protected. And, you know, we, we outline in the book some of the policy ideas that we pr propose, but I think right now speaking out on refugee issues is a really important one, that there ought to be uh, more refugees allowed to come to the United States at a time when there's more in the world, and instead we're doing dramatically less. Yeah. What's, what do you think is the church's unique role whenever it comes to refugees and immigration and how, how the church can get involved? Yeah, again, I think kind of in those same ways, like advocacy from the church actually makes it a ton, is very effective because, you know, we have still some moral credibility in this country. Um, we're looked to as sort of an arbiter of what is right and wrong by many in our society. And I think that's, you know, when churches speak up, when pastors speak up, when church, you know, national church leaders speak up, it has a significant impact. A lot have done so through something called the Evangelical Immigration Table. That is a kind of a coalition of different, particularly evangelical Christian groups. You know, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, and various others who've spoken up on this. World Relief is part of that as well. Um, but I also think in terms of immigrant integration, uh, that process of immigrants becoming a part of a local community, churches, both Protestant and Catholic, have been leading on that throughout most of the United States' history. And I think it's still an incredibly important role. I mean, if you look at the refugee resettlement agencies in this country, there's currently nine of them, and most of them are faith-based. I mean, World Relief is one, but the Catholic bishops are the largest of them. There's a Lutheran group, there's an Episcopal group, there's you know, there's a Jewish group. Um, but most of them are Christian organizations of one sort or another and are working in many cases with local churches to help people adjust because it's it's hard to land in a new country and not know anyone and usually not speak the language. And it, having someone who will be a friend who will help you through that process is incredibly meaningful. And uh, we think it's an important opportunity for the church to be faithful to those many biblical commands to care for immigrants, to welcome strangers, to extend hospitality, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So Matt, just as we're wrapping up, if you had uh, which I guess you kind of do, if you had the microphone but could talk to um, just Americans and Christians, what, what would be a couple of things that you want people to know about immigration and refugees? Um, I think one thing that I'd want, especially Christians, to know is that immigrants and, and refugees are very often your brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm. I think there's this dynamic where we think of them as very different from us. And there are cultural differences and sometimes there are language differences. But, I mean, I go to a Spanish-speaking church with immigrants from probably seven or eight different countries of origin in, in Latin America. They're some of the most passionate followers of Jesus that I've ever encountered. Uh, they challenged me a lot in my own discipleship as a Christian. The same is true. I mean, it, the number one refugee group over the last decade has been the Burmese, and 70% of them are Christians. And they're coming out of a situation where they're a distinct minority religiously in their country where their government does not like the Christian faith. They persecute Christians really horrifically. Um, but we have a lot to learn from those brothers and sisters in Christ who, you know, who are in some ways revitalizing local churches and denominations within the United States. I think the other thing that I really would want to challenge, again, particularly Christians, is this is an issue that we should think about first and foremost as Christians. Uh, if we only think about it as Republicans or only as Democrats or whatever other political parties talking points we might want to take in, we miss out on, I think, the most important perspective we could have on this. And the Bible has so much to say on the idea of how God's people should respond to immigrants. Uh, again, that's really part of why we wrote this book, to challenge um, 
you know, one of the stats that we've found uh, with a survey that LifeWay Research conducted for us was that only 12% of evangelical Christians in the United States say that their views on immigration are primarily influenced by the Bible. And I, I think that's a little bit of a scandal. Uh, if people who would say the Bible should be our authority for any tough issue, um, we really want to challenge people to start there and then let that inform our policies uh, and challenge both Republicans and Democrats to pursue public policies that we think are in in the common good that are consistent with pub, with the book of values. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. If people want to continue to learn from you from World Relief or find your book, Welcoming the Stranger, where's the best place for them to do that? So um, anything about World Relief, you can find at worldrelief.org, and you can follow World Relief on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sorens, um, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-O-E-R-E-N-S. Uh, and then in terms of the book, it should be available. Uh, it ought to be out in about by uh, July 3rd, so very shortly, at least at the time we're recording this, and you know, at any online bookseller or um, from University Press as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, Todd, really enlightening conversation. Learned a lot of things that I yeah. didn't necessarily know about what is the concerns of immigration and refugees, particularly south of the border, stuff like that. What's something that you learned? I think I learned a couple things. One of them is a, a reminder. I think that for a lot of us, we think that, you know, with government, they don't care about what we have to say. Um, we can talk to and do whatever and, and they're not listening anyways but he said something there um whenever i asked the question what can the average person do and he said that they can contact people who are our elected officials and, and and tell them hey i really want things that represent my values and things as it pertains to immigration policy um and so for me it was a reminder that hey i do have the ability to send a message online you can go to your your representative your local representative um state representative um you can write your senators and you can even write a message to the white house now most people are listening to this are probably thinking well Todd, that doesn't really do anything well you either do that or you can sit in front of your television eating cheetos complaining i mean seriously and i don't know why i put cheetos in there but i just feel like probably if you're sitting like cheetos i like hey i like cheetos but if you're complaining you're probably eating cheetos um, it's better than doing nothing. And we have the ability to be able to express ourselves. The other thing is this. Um, there's a lot of fear around this topic, this subject. A lot of visceral reactions on both sides. Um, for me, the, the, the role of the church. And so I'm going to say something very controversial, Caleb. And you can tell me whether or not you want me to delete this out. But that's okay. I read an article the other day by a lady named Rachel Held Evans. And she, she wrote this thing, and she talked about what it means to be pro-life. And she talked about how most people who are pro-life are actually simply pro-birth. But to be pro-life means to take a bigger perspective on things. And one of the things she mentioned in the article, and it rocked my world, I'm still processing through it, was she said that if we're going to be pro-life, we need to think about what it means to be pro-life to people who are trying to come to our country. Now, you can have a litany of reasons why... They shouldn't be allowed to come in, and those are valid reasons. They're things to be considered and thought about. But as it pertains to, to looking at this subject, this issue, when we tell people you're not allowed to come into the United States, what we are saying is we don't want you here. Go back to your country. And to go back to their country means that they're going back to a place that in some cases is, is, is a death sentence where they're going to be killed. 
as a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this really doesn't pertain to you. But if you are a Christian listening to this podcast, and that is that is really the response that you're giving when you say that, I, that doesn't fall under what it means to be a Christ follower. It just doesn't. And so we need to think about that. Um, I'll have Caleb put that in the show notes, the the link to that article that she wrote. But it's just a really – and it covers a whole bunch of other stuff in that. Yeah. But that was one piece that pertained to this conversation that I pulled out of it. I think it's really relevant to think about it. Yeah, and I think you, know, you just asked the question of – you know, just thinking through, okay, who who shouldn't we allow into this country? And people are thinking about that. To me, the que- the opposite end of it is, and it's really a question that we need to take seriously, is who are the people that you believe should come to this country? Right. Because, and again, to your point, if it's people who look like you and think like you and act like you and you're a Jesus follower— there's a problem. There's a problem with that. There's a problem. We need to think about that. So, you may be mad, and that's okay. That's okay. It's it's okay. It's an emotional topic. I'm not going to tell you, and, and here's the thing. Caleb and I, neither of us are ever going to take this perspective where it's like, you can go stuff that in your pipe and smoke it, and we're just going to leave it there. Like, it's okay. Like, it, it upsets us, too, like, to think yeah. about some of these things. And that's okay. Yep. I think it's good for us to have our thoughts and things challenged. Yep. I think that one of the things that we we learned from from Matt Dix in a previous episode was something actually that from he next said. week's episode. Oh, is it next week's episode? See, guys, we're recording all of these, and I'm just getting all confused. But one of the things that I'll give you a little teaser. One of the things that Matt talks about is how one of the big narratives to pay attention to in our country right now is not just the divide that's going on; it's the fact that nobody is willing to listen to the other person. Yep, and and I. That's a that's something to really be considered. Yep. And so, as Todd alluded to, next week we are talking with Matt Dix, and we are talking with him about how to become a better storyteller. And he gets really practical. One of the most that is one of the reasons why I love this book is he gets really practical. Most storytellers they talk super super. Practical. They talk in generalities. They talk in big picture stuff. And as uh, as my friend Kevin West likes to say. They talk in the macro. They don't get down into the micro, into the minutia and the details. And Matt does just that. And so the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Let us know what you're learning about right now. Let us know what you learned from this episode, from previous episodes. The best way you can do that is by leaving us a rating and writing a review of the podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Hit us up on social media at Instagram. You can see our episodes. You can see some of the things that we've taken away from these conversations and hit us up at the learners corner or hit us up on Twitter at learners podcast and let us know what you're learning about. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. My name is Caleb Mason and my name is Todd Hickson ball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces y'all.